right? And uh, we're going to go ahead and receive our offering for this evening. So if you uh, are near the inside aisles here, there should be a bag or a plate underneath your seat. Uh, there, If you can grab that and just pass it to the edge. And if you uh, get it at the end of the row, you can hang on to it. And in our closing set of worship, you can bring that up to the front, if you would. Um, so how's everybody doing? You guys okay? You're going to need a Bible. You're going to need a Bible. Thank you for the enthusiasm. I appreciate it. Grab your Bibles. If you don't have one, uh, there should be a red one in the seat pockets there in front of you. And uh, we're going to be in the book of Exodus, so that'll be good. Uh, We're in week three and a half, well, four, but technically three, uh, of a series called Awaken, Where We Go From Here. And so uh, a couple of weeks ago, about uh, the 16th of May, we announced uh, some news that impacts this community, <clears throat> excuse me, that Awaken, or Solstice, will eventually uh, become Awaken. And Berean is partnering with uh, me and uh, a call that I feel God has um, invited us into as a family to plant a church near St. Paul. And so that's where we're headed. And uh, we will meet through this month. June 27th will be our last night. So really want to encourage you, if you, uh, if you can, come back for that night. And we want to really just celebrate what God has done over the past uh, six plus years. And so we've got some things planned for that that I think should be neat. I'm looking forward to it. So I want to invite you to be there for that. Um, I read a book uh, not too long ago with our, uh, our small group, and it was called Just Walk Across the Room. It was by a guy named Bill Hybels. He's a pastor of a small church in Chicago called Willow Creek. You might have heard of it. And uh, in this book, uh, it's basically a book that talks about evangelism and the whole idea of Christians sharing their faith, which, depending on where you come from, has all kinds of uh, emotions that it might drudge up. Some of you might be really excited about evangelism. Some of you may have been on the other side of a really bad evangelistic experience where someone tried to, like, beat you over the head with truth. Uh, so there's, I know that there's all kinds of things that we think about when we hear the word evangelism, but... For me as a pastor and someone who's trying to lead in the midst of a community, I thought, you know, the Bible's pretty clear about the fact that we are ambassadors on Christ's behalf in this world, and so whatever evangelism looks like, we should be doing it. And so we read this book, and, uh, and it basically talks about the idea that the responsibility of Christians, of you and me who follow Jesus, in the whole process of evangelism is very simple, and it's this. To be faithful and obedient to the, to the opportunities that God gives when, uh, to, to share your faith or to share the story of God and the person of Jesus. So when you feel prompted, when you feel that sense like, uh, man, I should maybe say something, our, our, our job that's like at the end of the day is to say yes to those opportunities, to be faithful and obedient when God gives us the opportunity, and that's it. Beyond that, it's in God's court, which I really dug. Now, in this particular book, and I tell you all this to say this, there's one story that I'd like to share with you that I think has to do with what we're talking about in this series, which is how do we position ourselves, how do we, uh, what kind of disposition do we need to have as people to listen to and follow God's leading? Because it's obvious, if you've read the scriptures, that all throughout the Bible, there are instances and cases when God led his people, when God asked them to go to a certain place. And, and translate that to our day and age, there are times and places when, if you follow Jesus, you sense that God is leading you somewhere. And so we wanted to press into that. How do we respond to, how do we be faithful, how do we listen to God's leading? So here's this story. Um, Bill is getting his hair cut. <clears throat> I speak as though he's my best friend. He's not. I've never met the guy. Uh, as he tells the story in the book. Uh, he's getting his hair cut, and he's sitting there. And you know, like, 
Time out, pause. Typically when you're talking about evangelism, it's usually like the elevator, the airplane, and the barber stool, right? These are the places at which you have a captive audience. And I hate this kind of language, so this is not how I see it. But So he's sitting in the barber chair, and he's like, okay, Lord, <clears throat> if you want me to say anything, I will. And so he's just kind of conversing, talking with the, the lady who's cutting his hair, and la-da-da-da-da, and he's like, okay, God, whenever, you, whenever you're ready, I'm ready. And, you know, the, the haircut gets going, and she's getting to the sideburns, which means, like, time's almost up, and then she starts shaving his neck, and that means time's really almost up, and just nothing. And, and he gets to the end of the haircut, and you want to know what he shared with this lady. Absolutely nothing. Which is a bit anticlimactic, right? You're like, come on, seriously, why would you put that story in a book about evangelism? Um, but the point was this. Listening to God and following God's prompt in his leading isn't, isn't always going to take us where we think it might take us. And so for him as he's sitting in this chair, he's like, certainly God wants me to say something. And sometimes, you know what? The timing isn't just, the timing's not right. And for whoever's on the other side of the conversation, we need to be sensitive to all that. And so in this story, he says, I said nothing. And I followed God's leading. And so as we press into this idea of following God's leading and, and listening to him, um, <clears throat> we, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I had a real hard time here. Uh, so far we've looked at Moses a couple of weeks ago and we looked at, you know, all of the reasons why Moses said uh, excuses for God when God said, Moses, I want you to go. Things like, I'm inadequate. Things like, uh, wh- who, who should I say sent me? Or things like, uh, um, what if they don't believe me? Or things like, I just don't want to go send somebody else, right? We've all been there before. Uh, we looked at last week, Numbers chapter 9, and the Israelites being led by God by this cloud during the day and this pillar of fire at night. And we talked about the fact that pride and trust and really fear is at the, is at the heart of why we hesitate. When God says, follow me, and we hesitate, oftentimes it's connected to those things, but sort of uh, landed at this idea of how do we know or how can we trust that this God even knows where he, like how do we know and trust that when God says follow me we can do that and ultimately this God according to the scriptures knows where this is all headed and if you read Revelation 21 and 22 uh, this is where it's going we can trust the fact that God knows where he's going and that he, he he doesn't ask us to follow blindly he asks us to follow in the midst of relationship and communication and so this week as we look at what does it mean to follow God and what does it mean to listen to him as he leads? I want to focus on one of the most famous stories in the Bible. This is from Exodus chapter 32. So if you're in Exodus, go ahead and go to chapter 32. We're going to start there. If you were here this morning, perchance, when Roger spoke, uh, I'm not going to give the same message, so you can, you can rest at ease. I'm pretty sure he was in Exodus 32 this morning. Exodus 32. Actually, would you stand with me as we read from God's word here? <clears throat> We're going to read through verse 6. So it starts like this. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up from Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing. Parents, if you have teenagers, they will come to you and say, See, sons. Yeah, I, w- I want to get my ear pierced. Out of context, you can come back to me on that one. And bring them to me. So all the people took their earrings and they brought them to Aaron. He took them, or he took what they handed him and made him made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf 
fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Pray with me if you would. Heavenly Father, as we uh, spend time in your word tonight, we trust that it is dynamic, it's alive, it's not dead and static and two-dimensional, but actually, somehow, in some mysterious and divine way, you are present in and through these words because you have inspired them and you give them to us as a revelation of yourself. So as we, as we uh, read them and as we study them, God, would you shine your light on, on who you are? Would you make yourself available to us and continue in this moment, God, to reveal who you are? and what it means to follow you, Jesus. We pray in your name, by the power of your spirit. Amen. You can have a seat. Interesting little passage here. Interesting little passage. We're going to get to a number of it. Um, If you're wondering why they say gods, plural, this is common in ancient Near Eastern literature when they're talking about uh, gods. So it's not that they're talking about many gods, but they're actually talking about one god because they actually have this, uh, they they say that there's a, 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 you know, um, they're, they're, giving sacrifices to Yahweh, who's the one God of Israel. But a little bit of context for Exodus 32. So far in this story, you have to back up a little bit to get the whole deal. Exodus chapters, you know, at the beginning, uh, through about 10, 11, is the story of the Exodus when God calls Moses. Thank you, Jim, I appreciate it. Very good. Ah, lovely. So, uh, the Exodus, and they come out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 12 is the night of the Passover. So this is when the Israelites are actually leaving Egypt and the whole Passover thing happens. Uh, Exodus 13 is when they cross the Red Sea. So they get to the Red Sea. They're freaking out. They're all running around. Oh, why'd you bring us out here to die? And God opens up the Red Sea and they cross it. Exodus uh, 16 is the manna and quail. So they're all starving again. Oh, why'd you bring us out here to die? And God gives manna and quail. Exodus 17 is the water from the rock. Exodus 19 is the beginning of what scholars call the Sinai narrative. So this is the moment at which God shows up in the form of a cl- uh, cloud and thunder and lightning and what appears to be fire on the top of a mountain and gives Charlton Heston the Ten Commandments, right? This is the, I'm sorry, Moses, Moses. He gives Moses the Ten Commandments. So Exodus 19 is the beginning of that narrative. And a couple of things happen between here and about 32. Uh, And they are these. Um, Moses brings the people to the foot of the mount. So they're they're all led there around Mount Sinai. And God says, don't let any of the people touch the mountain because they will surely die. Uh, So he brings them all there. And according to my reading of it, and it gets a little, uh, you know, kind of, Dice, not dicey, but just murky. You've got to figure out where you are. Uh, Moses is led up to the top of the mountain four different times. Uh, the third time, he comes down with the Ten Commandments. So the first two, he, you know, God brings him up and says, tell this to the Israelites. And he comes down and tells them. And then he brings him up, tell this to the Israelites. And, then, and, and, and prepare for the next time. On the third day, come back up and I will give you. And so he gives him the Ten Commandments. The fourth time, or, or in between the third and fourth time, are chapters 24 and 32 of Exodus. Okay, so that's where we are in the story. And the fourth time, Moses is bringing down, so God asks him to come back up with 73 other people, a bunch of elders from Israel, and he brings them up there, and then Moses alone goes to the top. And what he gets in chapters 24 to 32 are really, really, really important, especially, and they're just, it's ironic what he gets in those chapters 
and then what we get, what we just read, chapter 32, when they build the calf. So what Moses gets in chapters 24 to 31 is essentially the details of the covenant, okay? The details of the covenant. Now, you might be sitting in your seats thinking to yourself, that's not that all that interesting, and you seem to get, like, really excited and, like, you know, into it, but that's not very interesting. Key question to be asked here. The last time Moses goes up the mountain, this is the last time, uh, well, actually, he goes up one more time later, but uh, this time, when he goes up to the top of the mountain, what specifically is God giving Moses and the Israelites? Specifically, what is happening? What's he telling them? What does it mean? What's the underlying theme of what's about to happen in Israel's history? What's happening is this. He's giving very specific directions. So if you go back and thumb through your little headings at, the, at uh, 24 to 32, you'll see things like sacrifice, priest, tabernacle, lampstands, oil for anointing, um, uh, uh, the altar, Sabbath. In other words, what God is giving to Moses is the explicit directions and way by which God the, the God of the universe, the creator, the one God, Yahweh, how he will make his presence known and particular with the people of Israel. So what you're getting in 24 to 31 is all of the ways in which God is about to show up in real time, in, in like particularity for the people of Israel. So what they're about to get is the real presence of God in their midst, living with them. This is like the precursor to Jesus, the incarnation, right? The incarnation is one of the most fundamental and phenomenal doctrines of the Christian faith, that God would come down and be with us and live with us. What they were about to get was the real physical, particular presence and glory of God in their midst. (laughs) And they build a calf instead. Fantastic. Just amazing. We're going to come back to this because (laughs) this is amazing. And it has everything to do with, it has everything to do with understanding idols and the human condition because that's us, okay? But before we get there, I wanna, we have to look at two other passages because these two passages, uh, I don't think you can read Exodus 32 and understand the story of the, the golden calf without understanding these other two passages. So uh, turn to Exodus 25. Flip back just a couple of pages, if you would. Exodus 25. So this is in the midst of 24 to 32 where God is giving them the details, the particulars, the specifics of just how he's going to show up. So Exodus 25, verse 17 says... So this is the section on the Ark of the Covenant, right? You guys remember Indiana Jones at the end of it when the guy's face melts off because he's in the presence of the Ark, right? And he opens it. That's what we're talking about here, okay? Except much more theological and less superficial in Hollywood. So he says, verse 10, here's how the Ark should look. And then in verse 17, there is actually a cover on the Ark, and it says this, make an atonement cover of pure gold, 
two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread outward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put the ark of the testimony, which I will give you, there, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, and I will meet with you and give you all the commands for the Israelites. Can you put up those two pictures for me? Okay, these are rep- replications. These aren't the real deal. Ah! You know, <laughs> not the real thing. So, on top of the ark, there's a cover. It's called the atonement cover. And on top of that cover are these two cherubim, these angelic beings. Show that next picture, if you would. Okay? And that's kind of what they were supposed to look like, facing each other on the edges of the ark, the cover of the ark, with their wings outspread like this. Okay? Now, scholars believe, or scholars call this, the mercy seat. All right? Or the the atonement cover. And it was... uh, it was the place in which, if you look at a couple of other scriptures, including 1 Samuel 2, the idea that the Jews believed, or the, the idea they, that, they, that they held on to, was that God's glory, like the, the presence of God, actually rested in that seat. And so that was the seat from which God ruled and reigned. That was the seat from which God sort of, you know, was present among the Israelites. Uh, another way you could say it would be that it was kind of like a pedestal for, for God. So God's presence would be seated on that little mercy seat on top of the ark, and that's kind of how the thing worked out. Now, why is this important? Turn to 1 Kings chapter 1. And while you turn there, uh, again, as a Jew, you cannot read Exodus 32 and not connect it to 1 Kings chapter 12. Now, scholars and people who are a lot smarter than I do all kinds of uh, literary criticism, it's called, where they try to understand, based on the literature itself, based on... Am I in the right chapter? Oh, that's Samuel. Sorry. I'm like, Samuel's farewell speech. This is not going to go well. (laughs) I'll be here for a couple more weeks. 1 Kings 12, 25. There it is. Okay. So, scholars would... uh, um, Literary criticism, right? So you have this story, which we're about to read, and and the the debate is which one was first? Which one was written first? Which one was recorded first? And do the two, uh, did one take from the other, and and how do they influence each other? Because oftentimes in Scripture, that does, and they do. So if you look at the New Testament, a lot of times you'll have one book that was written first, and you could see similarities from another book that was written after, okay? So that's kind of the deal, or the, the, the debate that goes on. Suffice it to say for us, Reading them together sheds light on idolatry. It sheds light on this issue of what is an idol and how subtle it really is. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem. Yes, this is right. I'm sorry. I just had to make sure we didn't get like halfway in. Uh, Fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And from there he went out and built up Peniel or something like that. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. Why would he say that? There's two kingdoms in Israel, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. These guys are in the north, Israel's in the south. 
if, if you are the king of the northern kingdom, the people would often, or this is, this is just how they did it, would travel to Israel, to Jerusalem, to worship. And so this king says, if I don't build something here, geographically close to these people, they're going to go down to the south, and they're going to worship there, and they're going to pledge their allegiance to the king of the south, and then I'm pretty much up the creek without a paddle. So this is technical Hebrew here. Uh, Then the the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. And if these people go up and offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me in return to the king of Rehoboam. So after seeking advice, the king makes what? Two golden calves. He says to the people, It is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Sound familiar? Exactly the same thing as in Exodus 32. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people went even as far as, to, as Dan to worship the one there. So here's what's happening. You have this king who doesn't want the people to go down south to worship. So he makes two idols, two pedestals, two seats that God's presence can rest and the people can come there and worship uh, the God of Israel, Yahweh. So even in Exodus 32, the Israelites get, you know, backhanded, they get whacked because they built this idol. Now, you have to give them some credit because at least it was an idol to Yahweh. At least it was an altar to Yahweh. Why a calf? Why a bull? They came from Egypt, and if you do any study of ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, cults and other religions, oftentimes this idea of a bull is made into an idol, and so this is not foreign to the landscape. So they're hearkening back to where they've just come from, Egypt, and they say, we're going to build an idol, what should it look like? How about a bull, because that's what we know. So they build this bull. Same thing happens in the kingdom in the north. He doesn't want him to go to the south, he builds these two things calves and he sets them up in Bethel and Dan and what does the text say says they became a sin and later on it says that they're destroyed by the 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 man of God a prophet who comes and and judges Jeroboam the king let me draw a couple of conclusions for us tonight in this whole issue of idolatry we're talking about what does it mean to follow God we're talking about what how do we position ourselves to hear the voice of God how do we position ourselves how do we listen insofar as to be able to, to make ourselves available to what God might say to us. From each of these different stories, we find two things that I think are really important for us to grasp. The first is this. From Exodus 32, where we started tonight, it's this idea of God on our terms. Remember, the Israelites are sitting at the base of Mount Sinai, and what they're about to get is the real presence of God, the, the particular Here and now, God's living in their presence. And what they substitute for it is something lesser than. It's a a representation of what they're worshiping. It's something that helps gain access to. It's something that helps them direct their attention towards this God. It's interesting because Moses was this leader, and he was the guy that sort of was the the go-between for God and the people. And so in his absence, and, and the debate is, is essentially, Moses was a day late, according to the most uh, you know, particular understanding of the text. He went on one day, and it said he'd be gone for 40 days and 40 nights, and he actually came back on the 40, 
like the 41st day. And so when 40 days were up, the people are like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, where's Moses? He's not coming back. We're going we're gonna to lose our, our access to God. And so they say to Aaron, fashion this idol. Make, give us something so we can worship God. It's God on our own terms. God wanted to make himself known and available to the people of Israel. He was in the process of doing so with Moses on the mount. And he was giving specific detail about the tabernacle where his presence would be located. It is precisely at this moment that Israel becomes impatient and create a means by which they could access God on their own terms. They forged this image, a bull, in in order to represent Yahweh so they could worship him. And what they create is an image, a shadow, a representation of the real thing. Because quite frankly, if we're honest about it, the real thing, especially in this case, is pretty frightening. The real thing, the essence of God about to be present among the people is not something to be taken lightly. People touch the mountain and you're dead. Only Moses can come up and he can't see God. This is the God of the universe. And so in this case, specifically, the real thing is a bit overwhelming. How often do we in life sacrifice and substitute and settle for less than what God intended. I can think of all kinds of examples, and the best one I could think of was actually sex. Not because I'm a guy. (laughs) Come on, that was funny. Come on. Here's why. Sex is one of the most powerful, intimate, relational experiences that a human being can have. We settle for something less because the real thing is scary and intimate and overwhelming. And often, people who don't have the courage and the guts to experience the real thing as God intended it settle for a shadow, a a representation, and a bad one at that when it's outside of the context in which God created it to be had. How often do we do that? If we have the courage to live into it, God wants, in this case for Israel and in our case as the church, God wants to give us himself. He wants to give us the essence, the real experience of the living God. And this is what Israel missed out on when they built an idol. I wonder how often we settle for something less than what God intended for us. And let's turn our attention specifically to the church. God wants to give us himself by his spirit, which the New Testament teaches, to lead and to guide and to, and to move the church forward into the mission of God in the world. And so often we settle for spirit-less churches, Churches that aren't led by anything close to what God's Spirit is intending and calling them to be and do. But ones that are just settling and who are operating on vestiges and shadows and representations and history and and whatever else you want to call it, tradition, liturgy, not liturgy in a bad sense, but we settle for those things and we actually think they're the real thing. Why do we do this? Because... We want God on our own terms. This goes back to Eden. 
This goes back to, I know what's best, and I want it this way, because it's about me. Now, this isn't explicit, of course, but implicitly, what's going on here? When we settle for less than what God wants for us, the real essence, the real presence of himself, and we settle for less than that, what is it? We want God on our own terms. We're Americans, for crying out loud. We can have it how we want it. We want it in our time. We want it at our convenience. The Israelites are sitting at the bottom of the hill, and if, in fact, the timing's right, Moses was like one day late, and they start building an idol. They're so impatient. But we're not. They wanted it now. Like, I want it. Give it to me. Doesn't sound anything like us. They create an image they can worship on their terms and an image that, and and this is important too, that they can control and manage. We're talking about God here. And yet, if we can create these systems and these things that we have control over and we can manage, we can manipulate God. And that's a whole lot more um, easy. That's a whole lot less scary. That's a whole lot uh, more manageable. And, 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 and so we do. God on our own terms. And what we have is an image or a vestige, or a tradition, or a history, or a liturgy, or a song, or a form that we can control and manage an image that is not alive and active, is not the living, breathing God, but one that is passive and inanimate. This is an idol. Exodus 25 and 1 Kings show us that oftentimes, not only do we want it on our own terms, but it's, a, it's an issue of mistaken identity. Now, again, these guys get wrapped really bad by all kinds of preachers and teachers because they built this idol. And here's the thing. I think we should give them at least a little bit of credit because they were trying to build an idol at least to the God who brought them out of Egypt, right? It's not like they had said, you know, uh, we, we just got caught, you know, called out of Egypt and the, the sea and the man and the quail and all this other stuff, so let's go worship Baal or let's go worship some other God who kills babies. No, they were, they were, actually, asked, they were actually worshiping God. But what happened, and this is so subtle and so easy, and my challenge to us tonight as a church is this. It's, a, it's an issue of mistaken identity. These, on the mercy seat, this is where the theology comes from. This is where God was supposed to rest. And so they wanted to build a place where they could access, where God could be, where God could rest, and they could worship him from there. But what happens is the means to the end becomes the end in and of itself. Let me say that again. The means to the end becomes the end in and of itself. And when you're talking about theology and when you're talking about God, what you have when that happens is an idol. Because when the means, that which is supposed to actually help you access the reality, becomes the end in and of itself, what we're worshiping, what we're bowing a knee to, isn't the real thing in and of itself, but a vestige of it, a shadow of it, a representation of it. This happens all the time, every Sunday when the church gathers. How many of you have heard, we don't take communion that way, we take it this way? This is, this is just anecdotal, right? It's just subtleties, you know, it's just this and that. 
I have heard and been, and we did communion differently one time at the last church I was at, and people flipped out. Because that's not how you take communion. That's not how you access the blood and body of Jesus. That's not, I'm not even kidding you. Communion is a tool. Do you think God needs communion? Do you think God needs baptism? No, he doesn't. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, I don't think he cares if they're there or not. Only insofar as they help us connect to the reality. Only insofar as they help us access the God in which communion tells the story of. But when communion becomes the end in and of itself, or baptism becomes the end in and of itself, or the way we do worship, or the way we do announcements, or the way we do liturgy, or the way we do whatever, the way we do sermons, the way we do church, what you have is an idol. Now, why am I so fired up about this? Because this is, this is particular to me. Because I, I've, I've told, the, and the one question that I get when I talk about Awaken most frequently is this. And it's connected to our schedule. So this summer, we're going we're gonna, to, the 27th is our celebration here at Solstice. And we won't have a preview service or uh, a time when we gather like this until October. Do you want to know what people ask me? What are we going to do all summer? When are we going to have church? Did you hear that? Did you hear the subtlety right there? When are we going to have church? Because for many of us, church and our understanding of church and our definition of church is so far afield from what God intended. It's not even funny. In fact, it's, it's sick. Because this, a couple of songs some funny announcements, a good preacher. This is not church. This is not church. Period. End. You and I are church. We are the church. And so when we talk about, well, what are we going to do all summer? When are we going to have church? What you have is an idol. Something that we, we, we bow down to and we say, this is how we access God. Gang, Glasses are falling off. I'm sweating so much. Church is not about a building. It's not about a sermon. It's not about worship songs. It's not about any of these things. These are access points. These are... And quite honestly, if you study the history of the sermon... It doesn't go back very far. So how did they have church back then? I mean, what did they do with no preachers and teachers? Oh my gosh. So here's what I want you to think about tonight. And I want to challenge you. Whether you're coming with us to start Awaken or not, I would like to jump right in front of your face. I won't do that because it would be awkward and inappropriate. But Theoretically, I want to get right in your face and I want to ask you the question. Are there any idols? Things that are the means to an end that have become so important to you 
that without them, you don't have access to God. I follow a guy on Twitter named Don Miller, and he tweeted one time, and he said, what would the church, how would the church do Christian discipleship without the sermon in a building? Which highlighted our addiction to buildings and sermons to, to, for me to grow as a person who follows Jesus. Now, I'm chopping my own legs off here. But I'm doing it because I believe that God has so much more that he wants to show us. He wants to give us the real thing, the essence of who he is. And we settle for less than that. So my challenge to you tonight as we think about how do we follow God how do we listen to God? I guarantee you that you won't get far with idols. Things that are either forms that we have fashioned with our own hands that we can control and manage, or things that have just become uh, the end in and of themselves, mistaken identity. Maybe they were. Maybe maybe the sermon wasn't set out to like you know be a bad thing. I don't think it was, but I think it has become a bad thing for a lot of people because they depend on it, they're addicted to it for their growth. I haven't been fed lately. I want to challenge you as people who follow Jesus, if that's you, what does it mean to be the church? If you take this building away and you take away the sermon and you take away the music and you take away all those things, can we still be the church? Can we still follow Jesus? Can we still participate in the mission of God for the world? Yes! And, and when we do, I believe we have access to, in a way that we, that we maybe don't even hear, access to what God wants for us to empower his church to do the work of God in the world. So what will we do all summer? Oh my gosh, it's going to be incredible. We're going to be the church in the world, for the world. And it's going to be incredible. It's going to challenge you. It's going to rattle your cage. It's going to break all your boxes. And it's going to take all the preconceived ideas you had of church. And it's going to just like, wah! And I guarantee, I don't guarantee a lot, but I would almost guarantee you that as you do it, if you say yes, whether it be here or somewhere else, you will find a life and a passion and an excitement that you have not found before. I, I am so fired up, I can't even tell you. So, I'm done. I'm sweating profusely. So I'm going to ask Stefan and the guys and gal, I think we have one tonight, to come and they're going to lead us in a couple of, of songs as we close. And as they do, if you would just uh, bow your heads, close your eyes. I want you just to think about this one question. And, 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 and as we uh, close, maybe continue to meditate on it. Idols are subtle. They're sneaky. The enemy doesn't show up and bang you over the head. But he wants less than what God wants for you. And so I would ask you this. Are there any idols, any ways in which... I'm settling for less than what God has in store for me. Not prosperity, not health and wealth, but God wants to give you himself. He wants you to experience the very nature, the very goodness and beauty and love of him. Are there ways in which we settle for less? Where something has gotten in the way. Something has 
we have settled for something less. And the, the means to the end has become the end in and of itself. Are there any idols? Heavenly Father, God, as we spend just a few moments resting in your presence, thinking about who you are, what we can learn from these stories that happened so long ago, I'm confident that there's something to be had for each of us. God, would you shine the light of your love in our hearts and make known to us maybe the things that we have made too high of a priority. Maybe the things that we think we, we don't have access to you if we don't have those. God, would you just flood us with you, with you alone. Would you make yourself known to us? God, as much as we can handle, would you give it to us? We want you, Jesus.